Well, praise the Lord. Amen. We're going to look this, this morning at the story of David. It divides into two parts. The first part of the story of David was before Bathsheba. The second part of the story of David was after Bathsheba. Play day became payday. Second Samuel chapter 11. It came to pass after the year was expired at the time when kings go forth to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel and they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbah but all those buts in the Bible but David tarried still at Jerusalem. What on earth was a fighting man like David doing, lolling around in his pajamas on the roof of his palace building, when he should have been out marching with his men? And that, that, that was just the beginning of it. Got so bored with himself. Looked over the battlements uh, of the roof and saw down there this woman taking her bath. He became a peeping Tom. It all began with a look. In fact, that's how it all began with the human race. It began with a look. The devil's strategy in the Garden of Eden was very simple, to get Eve by herself, pitch the temptation to her head, get her engaged in an intellectual discussion as to whether it was right to do something God had said was wrong, plant in her mind a doubt, follow it up with a denial, and finish off with a delusion. She had only one weapon of defense, that was the word of God. She had a Bible, it was very small, it consisted of two verses. But it's quite enough. Trouble with Eve was she made three mistakes in quoting two verses. (laughs) She subtracted two items from what God had said and added a little piece of her own. And what the devil did as he brought his strategy to a climax, he brought her face to face with the forbidden fruit. The golden tree of life, that transplant from the gardens of God, a gleaming exotic plant native to the high hills of heaven. There it stood, growing in the garden of Eden. And it says, when the woman saw, It says she saw, she took, she did eat, she gave, and it was all over. 
She saw the devil was to turn the look into a lust. She took the desire was turned into a deed. She ate, the choice became a chain. And she gave, the sinner was changed into a seducer. It all began with a look. And that's how it began with David, and that's how it began begins with most of us. David went back into his bedroom, wandered around his bedroom a little bit, then called one of his secret agents. He said, make some discreet inquiries, find out about this woman, I want to get to know her. Well, we're not going to recount the entire sad story, we know it all off by heart. Uh, David uh, enjoyed his little play day, but it didn't last very long. You know, there came an urgent note from the woman down the street. And play day had become payday. Ten things that happened to David after Bathsheba. We begin with David's duplicity. When he received that compromising letter, uh, David figured out the best thing to do would be to have the woman's husband sent home from the battlefront and send, send him down to spend a night or two with his wife, and that would take care of the situation. The problem was that uh, Uriah the Hittite, wife uh, of the seduced woman, was an honorable man uh, and he was too devoted to David and to David's cause when the battle was still raging and his friends and fellows down there uh, on the battlefront were in danger of death. He couldn't go, go on home, his conscience wouldn't let him, he stayed in the barrack room. It didn't work, David's little trick. So David made him drunk. Can you imagine? The sweet singer of Israel. A man who up to now had been called the, a man after God's own heart. He made, he made Uriah drunk. He figured if, if the man was drunk he might stagger off to his home and that also would take care of the situation. Well, we know what happened. Poor fellow was sent back to the front line with a letter addressed to Joab and instructions that uh, they were to engineer the situation on the battlefront so that uh, Uriah the Hittite would lose his life. When David received letter from a message from Joab to the effect that his instructions had been carried out and that Uriah was dead. Uh, David settled down and thought uh, he'd taken care of things. The problem was he hadn't taken care of God. He made, might have been able to make some sh shifty relationship with his now somewhat shaky conscience. Went on for a whole year, you know, sitting on the throne of, uh, of Israel, 
pretending everything was all right when everything was all wrong. It's astounding how people get into this kind of situation and go on with what they call their ministry. They don't have any ministry. Holy Spirit walks out of that relationship at once. They might go on performing the motions of a ministry, but they have no ministry anymore. I've, I've tried to picture myself, David, during this whole year sitting on his throne, and in comes the state prosecutor, and he brings a, 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 some, somebody with him into court, and he says to King David, it's clear case of adultery, my Lord King, taken in the very act. We've got three witnesses. Moses commanded she should be stoned. Would you like to sign the order? And all David can think of is Bathsheba. He said, he would say, put it in the file, I'll think about it. Or maybe callously just signed it. Although David was too honest a man really to enjoy being a hypocrite. And then the state prosecutor would present a second case, a clear case, my Lord King, an open and shut case of premeditated murder. We have retrieved the correspondence between the man and the assassin. No doubt about it, the man's guilty. Moses said he should be put to death. We've got it all ready for you to sign. Would you sign here, my Lord King? And all David could think of was Uriah, dead in the grave in which he'd put him himself. Went on for a whole year, playing games. I, I can imagine sometimes David couldn't stand it for another moment. He'd get up off his throne, he'd push everything aside, he'd, he'd walk out of the audience chamber and make his way down to the royal apartments in the palace and all he could think of every step of the way are the eyes that were watching him. He hadn't fooled anybody. He certainly hadn't fooled God. The eyes of cynical Joab and the eyes of vengeful Ahithophel and the eyes of malicious Shimei the whispering that went on as he walked out and the door closed behind him, breaking into a babble of conversation and exchanges of bits and pieces of information. Go, go, going into his own home, have to go past his other wives and his children. And they'd look at him as he went by. Everybody knew about it. And I imagine there was one place uh, in the corridor outside his royal bedchamber that he hated. He, he, he imagined perhaps it was haunted by the ghost of Uriah wrapped in a mantle dipped in blood. That ghost would haunt him. David's duplicity went on for a whole year playing games at being king, at having a ministry. 
And then there was David's disease. Now the history books in the Old Testament don't tell us about the disease that inflicted David. But the book of Psalms does. All the way through the Psalms of David, you have constant references to this disease. Psalm 6, have mercy on me for I am weak. O Lord, heal me. Psalm 38, there is no soundness in my flesh. My, my friends stand aloof from my soul. Psalm 39, remove thy stroke from me. You know, of course, in the Old Testament what the stroke of God was. It was leprosy. Purely and simply. Psalm 41, an evil disease, say they, cleaveth fast unto him. Psalm 102, my bones are like charred wood. It's not at all unlikely, you know, although the history book doesn't say so, but from what we, the hints and the, the, the suggestions we have in the, in the book of Psalms, that David actually for a while became a leper. That was God's Old Testament punitive disease. Smote Gehazi with leprosy, smote King Uriah, King Isaiah with leprosy. God got punitive diseases that he uses as weapons in this war. Things like syphilis and gonorrhea and herpes and HIV and AIDS. And things like that. God uses those things. David's disease. And then there was David's disgrace. I see, see him now, he's sitting on his throne having one of those days when he figures he better show up in court. I mean, things have been going to rack and ruin around the country for, for months now, and he figures he, he'd better show up in court and make a go at dealing one or two cases anyway. And as he's just sat down, he, he sees who's coming in, the first case of the morning, and he, he, he froze with horror sitting on his throne. It was Nathan. If there was one person that David was afraid of in Israel, it was Nathan the prophet. He was more afraid of Nathan than he was of the lion and the bear. More afraid of Nathan than he was of Goliath of Gath. More afraid of Nathan than he was ever afraid of King Saul. More afraid of Nathan than he was ever afraid of Achan, king of Gath. And I can see him, he's hanging on to the sides of his throne and he's watching with, with, with growing dismay as the figure of the prophet comes into his line of vision. Oh, breathes a sigh of relief. The prophet hasn't come as a prophet, he's just come as, as a, an attorney, as an intercessor for 
for one poor, poor fellow who's had an injustice done to him. And he listens uh, now with uh, increasing interest to the case. It's about a sheep, and David, of course, always was interested in sheep and that kind of thing. And he didn't see, he didn't see, he didn't see that Nathan had a sword. But he did. And as soon as David pronounced judgment upon, upon the offender in this uh, case of the poor man, Nathan pulled out the sword and he had it at David's throat and he said, You are the man. You are the man. And down he went on his face. Sobs and tears. Those who were standing around would never forget as long as they lived. The broken-hearted king down upon the floor, the giant killer, the sweet singer of Israel, that man who had been a man after God's own heart, that great shepherd of the sheep, writhing on the floor, crying out to God, pouring out those stanzas that eventually would fill a half a dozen psalms. You know, David never stopped crying after that always had something to cry about. All he was able to salvage, really, from what had been his ministry were half a dozen penitential psalms. David's disgrace. Well, then there was David's dismay. He lost all semblance of moral and spiritual control over his family. There was, for example, the case of Amnon. One of David's sons set his eyes upon one of David's daughters, half-sister. And you know the story, we needn't go into the dismal thing, uh, how he seduced the woman and then flung her out of his house. It was a clear case of aggravated rape and assault. David did nothing, did nothing about it, nothing. How could he? How could he put Amnon to death for that aggravated piece of immorality when he himself had burning in his conscience a case of just the same? Nothing. Nothing he could say. Nothing he could do. And so he let the thing go smoldering on, creating bitterness and hard feeling in the very various members of his family. And then there was the case of Absalom, planned, premeditated murder. Well, if the king wasn't going to take care of Amnon, then he would and did. What was David able to do about that? Nothing. So Absalom was guilty of murder. 
Well, how could he put Abnon, uh, Absalom to death for murder when he had murder on his own conscience? David's dismay. Terrible how this kind of thing destroys your authority in the family. We reap what we sow. God says so. And the Bible is full of examples that there comes a time when God allows it to catch up with us. And when it does, everybody knows it. It was David's danger. There was, for example, the matter of Ahithophel. Ahithophel had been David's very special friend. He was an old man, but he was brilliant. He was the cleverest counselor at court. It was said concerning the counsel of Ahithophel that it was so brilliant that it was almost as if a very oracle of God had spoken when he made a pronouncement. And he and David had been good friends. They used to go up to the temple together. David would often have his friend Ahithophel over for the night and, and they'd sit up in the early hours of the morning discussing matters of state. They, they were good friends. It was just not a, a king-counselor relationship. It was David and his good friend Ahithophel. When David, in, re, in, in flight from Jerusalem, got the news that Ahithophel had gone over to the conspiracy, with Absalom, he was panic-stricken. He stopped there, dead in his track, his tracks. He, he fell down on his knees and he prayed earnestly to God. And, and he said, oh God, I pray thee, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Oh God, I'm afraid of that man. He's clever. He's the cleverest man in the kingdom. When Absalom said... To Ahithophel, why don't you come and join me? He did. Went right over to the other side. David never asked why. He knew why. You see, Ahithophel was Bathsheba's grandfather. You can well imagine what he made of that. David seducing his little granddaughter, grown up now but the pride and joy of his old heart, and then cold-bloodedly murdering Uriah, her husband. Deep down in the soul of Ahithophel went and went 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 a gnawing, burning desire that he might one day get even with David. David was afraid of him. You know, Solomon later, later on wrote a proverb about it. I stumbled across this proverb when I was writing a book on Proverbs. Didn't know it was in there before. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 32 to 35, in essence, it says this. An adulterer 
is devoid of sense. He ruins himself by what he does. He is disgraced. There is no wiping away of his dishonor, for jealousy rouses a husband, in this case a grandfather. Jealousy rouses a husband to fury. He has no mercy when he takes revenge. No money buys him off. He will not be satisfied for all you offer, said Solomon with his eye on David. So uh, Ahithophel joined forces with Absalom and he gave him counsel. It was very criminal the things he suggested but very clever he said tell you what to do Absalom my friend my lord king rather <laughs> I'll get used to calling you king soon tell you what to do Absalom spread a couch up on the flat roof of the palace that's a nice handy place nice and public and then uh, commit adultery with all of David's wives that are still in the palace, one after the other, publicly, on the, the palace roof. Let everybody see it. Uh, they'll know there can be no reconciliation after that. Of course, do you know what he wanted? He wanted to avenge Bathsheba, didn't he? That's what he did. He avenged Bathsheba. And then he said to, to Absalom, he said, Give me a detachment of troops and let me catch David before he can gather his forces together and kill him. I'll kill him. That's the only thing you can do with Absalom. You've got to get rid of him, kill him. And I'd be, I'll, I'll be the one to do it. This old man wanted to avenge Uriah. It was very clever counsel, very wicked, but very clever indeed. David knew perfectly well he was in deadly danger with Ahithophel as the chief advisor to Absalom. And he almost succeeded, you know. If it hadn't been for the grace of God to David, he, he almost succeeded. And when he didn't succeed, Ahithophel went back to his house, put his affairs in order, and went out and hanged himself. How did David, I wonder, break that news to Bathsheba? I have something to tell you, Bathsheba. Your granddaddy is dead. He committed suicide this morning. And I'm really to blame. If it hadn't been for me, he'd still be alive. And he was my friend. And 
Bathsheba would say, and he was my grandfather. Ah, there's another ghost to haunt you, David. Another ghost. David's downfall. There there had been, for some time in Israel, just prior to the Absalom Rebellion, a lot of unrest. There were wars, rumors of wars, revolts, rebellion, civil war. Up to now, David, you see, had been absolutely invincible. He was the Lord's anointed. God had chosen him to be king of Israel and to lead Israel into her glory. But there there had been this whisper campaign, and for some reason or other, David somehow didn't seem to win the hearts of the young people of the nation. They all went over to Absalom. But it was that illness we we mentioned a few minutes ago, that, that illness, whatever it was, that David mentions in Psalm after Psalm, it was David was totally incapacitated by that illness. He... He not only had such a guilty conscience, he didn't like sitting on his throne, but he was ill, very ill. And that gave Absalom his opportunity. Psalm chapter 40, 41 tells us how Absalom on one occasion came in to see his father. The, the, the conspiracy was, was, was coming to a head, and Joab and his spies knew all about it, knew where they were stockpiling their arms, knew where they were mustering their men, and, and, and knew which, which agents were in which part of the country. And knew all about it, just, just finished bringing David an up-to-date report on, on the thing when there's a voice outside, cheery voice of Absalom, Hello, Dad, you all right? Can I come in? comes into the royal bedchamber and says, Oh, you're here looking a lot better, Dad. You'll be up and around soon. We, you don't have to worry about a thing. Joab and I are keeping everything going for you. It won't be long. So glad to see you looking a lot better. Let me puff up your pillow for you. Goes outside afterwards, as the psalm indicates, and said to his leading cronies, The old boy's worse. He's worse. We may not have to kill him after all. He may just die. You ever stop to think what David threw away for half an hour of what he might have then called fun? When God told Abraham he would make him a great nation. He promised to extend his empire from the River Nile to the River Euphrates. That's most of the Middle East. That was to be David's empire. If David had not sinned with Bathsheba, he would have conquered the entire territory from the Nile to the Euphrates. He would have built a superpower right there in the Middle East to rival anything that the Egyptians or the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the Persians or the Greeks or the Romans could put up. And the nations of the world would have come pouring into into David's empire to learn about David's God.
he would have been a schoolmaster to all Gentile countries round about, to teach them the ways of God. Instead, all he had was constant rebellion. If it wasn't the Absalom rebellion, it was the Abner rebellion. If it wasn't the Abner rebellion, it was the Adonijah rebellion. Nothing but rebellion. And David's depression. What has happened to the sweet singer of Israel? Man who always had a smile on his lips and a spring in his step and joy in his soul. What's happened to him? Ah, he's he's in deep depression. He's running away, of course. He... He, Joab's trying to hurry him up. You've got to get out of Jerusalem, David. You've got to get out. We've got to get across Jordan. We've got to get across Jordan before night. Come on, David, come on. Shuffling his feet. And then came this scoundrel, Shimei. You ever met Shimei? Up to now, David had either been cheered or feared. The case of Shimei was something else. Shimei was a reptile of the house of Saul. He was a Benjamite. He hated David. Hated him. Hated him with a bitter hatred. Every, every, you'd always see Shimei with some of his cronies and, and he's, he's whispering about David. Wicked things he said David had done. Foul-mouthed individual he was. He, well, he, he took a great delight in the Absalom rebellion. He, he, he positioned himself on the Mount of Olives. He knew perfectly well David and his entourage would have to go by there. And he had a nice little pile of rocks. And he had a soul full of curses. And as the entourage came by, he began to swear and curse and blaspheme David and throw stones and rocks at David and jeer and sneer at David. You wicked old sinner, you got what you deserve. David had a man marching by his side. His name was Abishai. I think he was one of David's cousins. He's certainly one of David's mighty men. He said, Why don't you let me go over there and take that man's head off? David said, No, let him curse, let him curse. Perhaps God has told him to curse me. Let him curse. And then there was David's distress. When the battle lines were drawn between... Absalom and David and the battle would be joined in the morning and David mustered his men and he he was going to give them some last minute instructions before they went into battle but instead of uh, seeking to inspire his men as he would have in the old days Recounting former victories, calling upon God in outpoured soul and heart and prayer that he would come down and bless the 
the arms and the marching into battle. Oh, no, nothing like that. Nothing like that at all. Yep. I want you to deal gently with Absalom. What a foolish thing to say. What's happened to the old David? Oh, you see, Bathsheba happened. Bathsheba happened. Deal gently, he said, deal gently. Joab said to the fellows as soon as they were out of sight and around the corner and halfway down, he will deal gently with him, all right. You just give me half a chance. I'll show you how gently to deal with him. And then came that exceeding great and bitter cry when the news came at last that his beloved, his beloved Absalom was dead. Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would God I had died for thee, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. You don't read... A more heart-rending cry than that until you come to Calvary. That's what he got, you know. That's what he got for what he did with Bathsheba. He never stopped paying. Never stopped paying. God forgave his sin. We know that. That's clear as crystal. Some of the penitential psalms uh, go into that and into the theology of it, but the consequences remained. And then there was David's dread. It's always in the background, of course, always had been since they were young fellows together. David and Joab. Uh, Joab was David's nephew, but they're about the same age. Alexander White sums up Joab as tool turned tyrant. He was always a hard man to handle. He was a tough fellow, was, was Joab. He was able. He was ruthless. He, he, he was a tremendous fighting man. He knew how to, to, how to lead an army into battle. Tremendous. But ever after David wrote him that letter... Dear Joel, uh, this will return Uriah to active duty. My instructions are to you to see to it that Uriah gets put in the forefront of the battle and that something happens and he gets killed. Signed, David. P.S. Please tear up this letter. Ho, 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 ho. Tear up a letter like that? He put it in his pocket. And then he put it in his safe. He had something on David. David knew it. He was always afraid of, Abs of Joab. Always afraid. He said, you, you, you sons of Uriah, he said, you're too hard for me. A pair of you, all of you, three of you. And you see the insolence that 
Joab exhibited toward David when he was weeping over Absalom. Mind you, Joab was dead right, but he was insolent just the same. Goes up into the bedchamber and says, Get up, man! Get up! Dry your eyes! What do you think you're doing? Go down there! Don't you know the troops are deserting by the dozen? They, they, they're waiting for you to come and congratulate them on the great victory. And you're up here bawling your eyes out. Get down there. What kind of a king do you think you are? He had good cause to fear Joab. Joab was ambitious. Joab coveted the throne for himself. That's why he backed the Adonijah rebellion. David went in fear of Joab. The rest of his days, one of the last things he did on his deathbed, he said to Solomon, make sure you put Joab to death. He's been too hard for me, he'll sure be too hard for you. And there was David's defeat. I think this is one of the saddest consequences of all of David's involvement with Bathsheba. You see, David was a born warrior, bred into his very bones. It was, it was a God-given gift to him. He was anointed by God to conquer Israel's foes. He says that himself in the 114th Psalm. He says, Blessed be the Lord my strength, who teaches my hands to war and my fingers to fight. Raised up, equipped by God and anointed by God to win the empire for Israel. Fighting man. That was before Bathsheba. War broke out again, and war with the Philistines, no less. Philistines wouldn't have dared show up before Bathsheba, let me tell you. Goliath, of course, had been dead for a long time. That was an end of him, but, and he had he'd long, long since been forgotten. And, and, and in this particular battle with, with the Philistines... Uh, Joab went off to battle and uh, David showed up later on at the battlefront. He, he, he had dug out his old armor and polished it up and, and he, he'd rattled off down to the front and you're going to show him how to fight. Still fighting the old dog yet, you know, Joab, we'll show him, won't we, Joab? didn't realize, like Samson shorn of his knocks, he was as weak as other men. And then a fellow named Ishbi Benob showed up. Now, if, if, if I had a name like that, I wouldn't show up any place. But... <laughs> Do you know who Ishbi Benob was? He was one of the sons or the brothers of the giant. He's one of them. There were five of them all together. That's why David took five smooth stones out of the book when he went down to fight Goliath. He knew that Goliath had f four brothers. If they showed up, he was ready for all of them. 
Well, at this particular occasion, David showed up and then Ishbi Benob showed up. He was just like his, his, his older brother, long since dead. His spear weighed 300 shekels of brass. And the Holy Ghost says that he thought to have slain David. That's why he'd come. Somebody said, hey, that, that, that doddering old man, the, the, the king of Israel, he's down on the battlefront pretending to be a soldier. Why don't you go down and fix him? And he did. That's, that's what he came for. And if it hadn't been for Abishai, the giant would have killed David. So they sent him home. They sent him on home. They said, Your Majesty, you're not up to it anymore, you know. You're not up to it anymore. You'd better go on home. Once he'd stayed home when kings went forth to battle. Now he's sent home. After all, there were still another three giants. David would be better off in bed. So they sent him back home with a little escort and tucked him safely into bed. Well, David, was it worth it? Was it worth it, David? Was it worth it? Bathsheba! Adultery! Cold-blooded murder! And you thought you'd got away with it. You never get away with it. There's one sin which is quite different from all others, and that's the sin of immorality. God has pledged himself to judge that sin. Shall we pray? Oh God, our Father, we're living in a day when God's people are being attacked along moral lines and pulpit and pew alike. There is an absolute epidemic of immorality in the church. And we ask that you will grant by your Holy Spirit that, that we might get our hearts right with God and walk softly with our God in this strategic area of life. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.